I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. In this episode, I read from chapter five of my book on how to plant and grow a church. I'll be talking about how to plant a church with financial backing as opposed to a self-supporting model. I'll cover how to form a team, what to do in the 90 days prior to the planting, how to have a massive first service, how to make your churches guy-friendly, and how to schedule your time as a church planter and leader. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I just personally registered today for the CLIMB conference. I didn't want to miss the early bird discount being offered right now. It's only $125. Joel Pede and Joel Nagel, my co-planners of the conference, are meeting in Dallas this next week to mastermind a great conference together. We already have Sean Wooten, Dave Bliley, and Darren Overstreet committed, and we're looking forward to having a full slate of great speakers. I'll let you know more about the conference once I meet with Joel and Joel. I want to ask you to register now for this conference. Do yourself a favor and sign up. I haven't met a single participant who regretted coming and learning at the past two conferences. Now more than ever, You need the practical training, the warm encouragement, and powerful inspiration that this conference will provide you with. Whether you're a small church leader, a planter, a ministry leader, campus leader, or someone who aspires to ministry sometime in the future, you're going to thank yourself for showing up in Dallas, Texas, November 30th through December 3rd of 2023. We have people coming from India. Europe, and New Zealand, and more are signing up every week. Sign up today by going to robskinner.com and looking for the CLIMB conference tab. That's robskinner.com. Chapter 5, How to Plant or Lead a Church with Financial Backing. One of the greatest moments of my life was the time I got a phone call from Preston Shepard, the leader of the San Francisco Church of Christ who asked me if I was interested in planting a church in Portland, Oregon. I don't think he knew I was born in Oregon and had a dream to plant a church in my home state. My wife was not quite as excited. She'd already been on a mission team to Cairo, Egypt, and Oregon must have seemed very pedestrian to her. In any case, in June of 1991, a group of mostly young people in their 20s loaded up our cars and moving vans, and after a send-off worship service, drove north to Portland. There were some disciples already living in Portland, and with invitation cards pre-made, we arrived with a combined team of over 40 people. The minute we parked, we stepped outside in downtown Portland and started inviting people to our first church service. It was a magical time, as the church grew to over 80 disciples in the next six months. Pam and I moved to Seattle at the end of the year, but those six months were some of the best we've ever spent. For example, at the end of that first summer, 
We had a baptism service where six people were baptized the same night in the pool on the top of our apartment. If I had to choose between self-supported or fully supported church planting, it'd be a no-brainer to have the financial support to get your church off the ground. It removes the intense financial pressure you'll face in a bivocational situation. If you have the opportunity to plant a church supported by ascending church, don't miss it. Here are some of the things I've learned from 30-plus years of church planting. Forming a team. Once you've been asked to plant a church, or you've persuaded a church leader to help you get a church going, you'll need to form a team. Your job is to get as many solid church members to go. When we planted the church in Tucson, we went on a recruiting visit to Los Angeles and Phoenix, the two sending churches for the new planting. We flew into town, and I preached to those interested in exploring the opportunity to go on a mission team. I have outlined the lesson below. 10 Reasons to Move to Tucson Point number one, what makes the mission team so unique? Why should you go? What is the benefit? Let me give you 10 reasons for going to Tucson. Number one, fourth soil living. I read Mark chapter 4, 7 through 9, 18 through 20. And I talk about how we use this passage for non-Christians, about the, the parable of the soils. But the third soil is often where many of us are living. We're choked out by worries, desires, the deceitfulness of wealth, and are barren and unfruitful. Which soil do you want to live in? Do you want to live in the third soil or the fourth soil? Sometimes it takes picking up your roots and getting into good soil. The benefit of a mission team is its singular focus, saving souls. My second point, first string living. I talk about how the playoffs, in the playoffs, many pros never see any time in the game. Although they're skilled, they aren't quite good enough to be on the first string of a team, even though they've been the best their whole lives. And many times in established churches, we don't get time, quote-unquote, because there are a lot of other great disciples around us. We can feel like we're on the bench, but we still have game. Mission teams are great because everyone goes into the game. You'll be begging for time on the bench just to take a breather after you've been on a mission team. Third point, leadership training. Some of us are young and hoping to lead in the future. You want to make a difference with your life. There's no better way than going on a mission team. I share about Chris Schwarzenberger, how he got the training and opportunity he needed in the small church environment. He got married, and then he got appointed as an evangelist, and he leads the church now in Spokane, Washington. Point number four, a chance to sacrifice for Christ. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know the story about the rich young ruler, and we use this for non-Christians. But the question is, how would we do in that situation? The mission team allows us the chance to step up and put our faith on the line. Fear, it gets us going. But what's going to happen? In verse 28 through 30, Peter said, We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or field for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus promises a hundred times as much for anyone sacrificing for him. Are you ready for that chance? 
when we planted the church in Ashland, it was scary. It was very scary. We Basically, I lost my entire savings. It, it happened right during the Great Recession. I started a new career. I left the, the paid ministry to get this small church planting off the ground. But I, I'm so glad that I did. I just proved to myself that I was willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ. It builds your faith when you sacrifice for Christ, and it's good for you. So ask yourself, are you willing to sacrifice for Christ? Point number five, the mission team gives you a chance to put your faith into practice and follow Jesus. Mark chapter 1, 16 through 18. In this passage, his disciples, they leave it all. They drop their nets and they follow him. They had the privilege of walking with Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Living out the mission. You already made this decision when you became a Christian, but remember, Jesus sometimes calls us twice. In John chapter 1, 35 through 42, Jesus had already called those guys. This was actually their second call in Mark chapter 1. Remember when they asked him, where are you spending the night? And he said, hey, come follow me. And they spent the rest of the day together. So that was actually the first time they met. So in Mark chapter 1, it appears that that's the second time. So he didn't call him the first time he met him, just spent time with him. But maybe Tucson or, or wherever your mission goal is, that's your second call. Make sure you take it. I remember the, the time I got a phone call asking us to move to Tokyo, Japan. Now, that was huge. We'd always been, I'd always been in the States, but we just decided we're going to go. We're not going to say no, and we moved to Tokyo, Japan. I'm so glad we didn't say no. That was one of the best 10 years of our lives so far. Point number six, a chance to start over and have a fresh start. Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. The scripture says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Everyone deserves a fresh start. We've all made mistakes. The mission field is a chance to get around people who don't know you. It's amazing when you join a mission team, the baby Christians you help, they'll think you're a spiritual superstar. They'll think you've been a disciple forever. They won't know anything about your checkered past. And if you've ever thought, man, I wish I could just start over, mission teams give you a chance to start on a fresh footing. It doesn't change everything, but boy, it's really awesome to just go, okay, this time around, I want to make a difference. Point number seven, a chance to inspire the kingdom of God. The kingdom needs inspiration at all times. Let's show people what God can do. It was my goal at that time of the the Tucson planting to have over 250 people at the first worship service. We ended up having almost 500. That was pretty inspiring. And that's what a mission team can do. Point number eight, a chance to witness God doing amazing things. Habakkuk 1.5 says, look at the nations and be amazed. I'm going to do something in your time that you wouldn't believe even if someone told you. And that's, that's so powerful about this passage. And God does amazing things, things that you can't even imagine even as you contemplate what God is able to do. And it was, it's really exciting because in the church in Ashland, it doubled in a little over a year. It was really awesome. I mean, it, it was slow starting, but then it just really, really took off. And that was, that was in a self-supporting church. Small churches have a way of just really doing miracles. Point number nine, a chance to make memories and best friends for life. Time seems to stand still on a mission team. When we were in Portland, we were only there for a little over six months, about seven months. But I remember we had six baptisms in a single day. 
And every day seemed amazing. It seemed new. It seemed fresh. It seemed like we were there for six years, but it was only like six months. But we made so many great friends during that wonderful time. Number 10, a chance to express our love for Christ. John chapter 21, 17 through 19. That's where Peter, Peter is told, feed my sheep. Do you love Jesus? Then feed his sheep. Seek and save the lost. Follow him. There's no better way to express your love for God than laying it all on the line and going for it. Join the team today. So that's my lesson that I give to people in forming a team. And you can adapt it. You can use it. I love to use that lesson because it's so it's so powerful. I think so many people who want to go on a mission team, they're looking for a fresh start. They want, it, they want to break out of the ordinary, the humdrum. For many, many people, they haven't borne fruit in years. I mean, literally years. I remember one time a couple called me and said, listen, before you, you know, ask us to be on this mission team, we want to, want to let you know we haven't borne fruit in like over 10 years. And I said, listen, just come on the team and you will. And it was amazing because that married couple, they helped like eight, eight couples become Christians in Tucson. And it was all because they put themselves in a situation that enabled that kind of fruitfulness. They put themselves in a very fertile mission field. And so sometimes if you're in a barren field, it's time to make a change and join the mission field. How to inspire people to follow you. Your life, example, and enthusiasm are absolutely contagious. If you're inspired, you will inspire others. You'll need to share with everyone you meet where you're going and why you're going there. Disciples want to make a difference for Christ. They only need an example of a person willing to lead the way to step forward on faith. Don't forget to get a song leader. When we were living in Ashland, the music ministry was fantastic. We had converted and attracted many talented musicians. Unfortunately, I had taken these gifts from God for granted, and when we were recruiting team, team members for Tucson, a song leader wasn't on my radar. Only after we'd arrived and were meeting for our initial gatherings did I realize the magnitude of what we were missing. We had no song leader, and so I had to step in and lead some old songs. We also had to borrow a song leader from a neighboring city who had come down and lead songs for us. Luckily, a young mission team member named Matt Mike approached me after one of my failed attempts at song leading and offered to develop his song leading. He became an excellent song leader by necessity and still song leads. Worship ministry is incredibly important. However, you don't often realize how important it is until you don't have a leader for it. Let me repeat, don't plan a church without a talented musician and song leader. 90-day pre-planting period. It's tempting to hit the ground running and have your first big service immediately after arriving at your mission target. I've done it that way when we planted Portland and it turned out okay. However, the difference is that we had a lot of people to start with, nearly 50 people, and many of them had been meeting together while waiting for the official planting to begin. Not only that, but we had several excellent song leaders on the team. I lucked out that time. In most situations, you'll be starting with less than half that number and may or may not know what type of team you're starting with. It's better scheduling in a three to six month quote-unquote pre-season warm-up period before your first official inaugural service. You'll still meet on Sundays and Wednesdays, but the primary purpose is to practice and prepare for the big launch. We did this in Tucson and it was helpful for several reasons. Team members tend to drift in gradually as they leave jobs, family, and homes. Your team will take time to build in numbers. 
They'll also be distracted during the first couple of months getting settled into homes and apartments, setting up utilities and getting new licenses, etc. So giving people time to get situated so they can full focus wholeheartedly on the work is a great idea. Next, you need time to practice your services. People are coming from various churches and church cultures, and it takes a while to learn songs and ways to worship together. Next, you need the platform to teach and train your team. You are the coach and hold the vision for your mission planting. You'll need to use Sundays and Wednesdays to educate your team on the basics of planting a church, evangelism, relationship with God, righteous living, vision for the city, relationship skills, confession, etc. No professional football team would kick off the first game of the season without practice and coaching before the season opener. Neither should you. Next, you'll need time to find a good location. Our first meeting in Tucson was a high-end burger joint called Zin Burger. We met with 15 people. It was fun, but not an ideal permanent location. We then moved on, on to a local hotel conference room that held 35. It was better, but still limiting. It took about two months to find our, our current locate location, a middle school across the street from the University of Arizona, and that could hold 300 people easily and nearly 500 for our first service. You'll also need time to get to know your team. People reveal talent over time. By having a preseason before the kickoff service, you'll get to know your squad and its capabilities in detail. Next, team, me- team members need time to get to know their neighbors and the people around them. My son and daughter enrolled in the local high school, joined teams, and brought out their friends and their parents for our first service. Six months later, those parents got baptized. Allow time to build relationships and connections. Start big to get big. As a young Christian, I remember hearing about the planting of the Los Angeles Church of Christ in 1989. I had recently graduated from UC Berkeley and was working in the Bay Area as a ministry intern on campus at UC Berkeley. Tom Brown led the church planting in Los Angeles. He was asking everyone in our family of churches who are from Los Angeles or who had friends or family living in Los Angeles to attend and invite everyone they knew to the inaugural service of the church. When we got the news of the first service, we were blown away. They had over 1,000 people in attendance at their first service. That church went on to convert thousands of people and now has over 6,000 members. The point is this. If you want to get big, start big. In planning our inaugural service in Tucson, I remembered the example of Los Angeles and asked everyone I knew to join us for our kickoff service. I asked the team to invite friends and family living in Tucson to our service. We asked anyone who had a connection to Tucson. Members of the Phoenix Church living two hours away came and brought people they knew who lived in Tucson. We had people from Los Angeles join us who brought friends. The result is that after a three-month preseason, our church started with 483 people. It was standing room only. I asked a song leader, Brian Craig, from Los Angeles to lead worship and singers from Phoenix to help our service. This was because I hadn't recruited a trained song leader for our team. In any case, it was inspiring, awesome, and fired up everyone who came. For me, it gave and still gives me a mental picture of what our church will look like in the future. It was like looking at a snapshot of our future church. From that beginning, our team of 22 members grew to 100 members by our second anniversary service. We baptize baptize our 100th member within two years. 
simple and short services. In larger churches with more people, talent, speakers, worship bands, and announcements, the service can stretch out to two hours. I'd recommend keeping your service to a trim 60 minutes. With limited resources and manpower, it forces you to present your best in a compact form. You don't need to match what the megachurch does or even what your old church does. Make your worship services the best they can be with what you can offer. Make it guy-friendly. You want to make your services guy-friendly. Many churches have a gender balance of 60% or more female members. One reason for this is that guys tend to have shorter attention spans and don't want to be stuck in one place for two straight hours. Design your service in a way that guys will love. Allow only one sermon per service. Occasionally, you'll attend a service in which an overeager member is dying to share his insights in the communion. He'll ramble on for 20 to 25 minutes while everyone is wondering, is this the sermon or the communion? You'll be tempted to cancel your sermon because everyone feels like they already listened to one. Limit your communion to two to three minutes at most. Coach people that a communion prayer is often enough or a scripture, guided reflection, and prayer at the most. Often I'll say a communion prayer at the end of my sermon to save time. This rule applies not only to communion messages, but also to personal testimonials and baptism sharing. Anytime a person takes the microphone, there's a possibility they won't give it back. The problem is that if they're going long, you'll look like a fool trying to get their attention to get off the stage. Consistent coaching and repetition will help you avoid this problem. Make it a rule. Only one sermon per service. About sermons, keep it under 30 minutes. 30 years ago, the preacher was finishing his introduction at the 30-minute mark and would often go 50 minutes. In the age of the 20-minute TED Talk, a 45-minute sermon is a relic of a bygone era. Limit your preaching to 20 to 30 minutes. Your audience will appreciate it, and it'll force you to say what you need in a concise format. A good book on brief sermons is Andy Stanley's Communicating for a Change, or his lesson on YouTube, How to Give a Talk. A typical worship program. If you're wondering how to have a service in 60 minutes, I've attached an example of one of our worship services. So let's say we start at 11 a.m. The worship begins. We have four or five songs. And then at 11.15, we have a welcome with communication cards and a prayer. And so let's say the Millers get up there and they say, before we jump into the rest of our service, take a minute, pull out your communication card from your welcome packet. We'd like to ask you to take the next few minutes to fill out as much information as you feel comfortable sharing in the front of your communication card. You can drop your card in the offering basket as it passes at the end of the service. And we sing one more song, and then there's a sermon and communion prayer at at 11.20. And so I'll get up and preach the word, then I'll have one song. And then if there's a baptism, we have it right then. One person shares. We don't have five people sharing about how awesome this person is. Just boom, get it done at about 11.45. And then at 11.50, we have a response and communication cards. The, the people get up and say, go ahead and pull your communication card out again and look at the back. You'll see a list of possible next steps that you can take following today's message. Just check the box to let us know. If we can be praying for you in any specific way, write that on the lines provided and know you will be prayed for this week. If you're visiting for the first or second time, we're so glad you're here. To say thank you for visiting, we want to offer you a free gift Bible. You can drop your card in the offering basket when it comes around in a few minutes. 
Then we have the collection. And they say, we come to that time in the service where we take the offering. For those of you who are visiting, please feel no obligation to participate. This service is our gift to you. But for those of you who consider the Tucson Church of Christ to be your church home, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to participate financially in the ongoing support of this ministry. If you forget your gift, here are several ways to give. You can text a number. Text TOCC to the number 77977. Give online. We have prepaid envelopes that we have that you can mail back or use your bank's free online bill pay service. As the basket passes, please remember to place your envelope and communication cards in them. Then we have announcements, church camp, grab your kids after this final song, and then we have a final song. And so that typically will get to about 12 o'clock or 12.15 or somewhere in 60 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes max. That's what we try to shoot for every single Sunday. Start on time. I'm not sure what it is, but it seems starting time for churches is relative to the region you live in. When we lived in Tokyo, Japan, most people were at church a few minutes early. When we moved to Tucson, Arizona, we felt like we'd walked into a different dimension. It didn't matter whether it was a birthday party or major service. Many people were showing up 20 to 30 minutes late. We had a hard time starting our worship singing because there were so few people in the audience. No matter how many times I talked about it, nothing seemed to change. I agonized about this. God advised. Nothing seemed to work. We moved our Sunday worship from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. so that people would have more time in the morning to get there and as a concession to sleepy college students. At one of our 7 p.m. midweek services, I took a picture of the audience from the stage. There were four people in the picture at 7 p.m. I showed the church the picture and lectured on the importance of being early. Some told me to start the service later. Others said to start on time even if no one was there. I was hoping there was a magic fix for this problem. I was hoping there was a silver bullet. Unfortunately, I have yet to discover one. Finally, I just decided to start on time. Unless it's one of our four major services, Easter, fall, back to school, Christmas, or February back to school. During these services, we'll say a prayer at the starting time, and then we offer food and fellowship for about 15 minutes. We are officially starting the service, but the singing doesn't start until most have arrived about 20 minutes after the advertised starting time. Do the best you can and start on time. Demand a 50-50 membership. As mentioned above, many churches have far more women members. Many men are worshiping at St. Mattresses on Sunday or are watching football or basketball on Sundays. You must make a conscious decision to expect and demand a balanced membership demographic. When we started the the planting in Tucson, our team consisted of eight men and 14 women. I knew we'd have to work hard to develop a balanced ministry. Within two years, we had a 50-50 gender balance. I got many quizzical looks and skepticism when I told people that growth would not be enough. Balanced growth was necessary. People can be touchy about structured building. They sometimes desire to leave it up to God. This approach has a spiritual appearance, but leads to a poorly built church. In my experience, in churches in which women outnumber men, I ache for the older single women who have few dating prospects. Locked into their devotion to God, hoping for Mr. Right to show up, and at the same time consistently approached by their co-workers who don't follow God. It's one of the top reasons people abandon their relationship with God and walk away. As Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 5.11, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Eager and normal. 
By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. 1 Corinthians 3.10 In your desire to build your church, you'll be tempted to take shortcuts. You will at times be desperate for baptisms and will be tempted to accept anyone in your fellowship who has a hint of openness. This is where you need to have an idea of how you're going to build your church. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, describes how he had a profile of the person the church was trying to reach. He called him Saddleback Sam. And that was a composite of the young urban professional typical to Orange County, California in the 80s and 90s. And Rick Warren went on to build one of the largest churches in the world by targeting a segment of the Southern California population. Regardless of your sensitivity to racial or economic targeting, the method worked And now they also have people of all different backgrounds in their church. The takeaway from Warren's approach is to have in mind the type of person you're looking for in the startup stage of your church. You don't need to go into as much detail as Pastor Warren did in planting his church, but I would recommend having some criteria. When planting a church, I'm looking for men and women who are quote-unquote eager and normal. You're looking for serious seekers, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, people who are seeking God with all their hearts and those whose lives are functioning on a typical level. That's what I mean by normal. Why? Well, first, you don't want to waste your precious time trying to persuade and beg people to seek God. The people you first convert create the culture and atmosphere of your future church. Quite often, they become the future leaders of your church, and many go into the full-time ministry. They're the engine of your future growth. You need eager, passionate lovers of God who will continue to drive the future growth of your church. Not only that, but many people are attracted to the joy, enthusiasm, and family atmosphere of a church planting. Many of these people are struggling with deep emotional scars, chronic health problems, addictions, financial crises, and other massive life issues. If these people become your primary focus in the first year or two, you'll be pouring out all your energy on those who cannot easily in time turn around and help others. Built correctly, you'll be able to reach these people once you have your foundational people in place. It's a timing issue. You need to avoid draining your limited resources on those who legitimately need more help than you can give. This may sound heartless to some people. However, you need to keep this question in mind. Who are we best able to help? If someone comes to your church and is looking for addiction or grief recovery or who has chronic health issues, they would be better helped by a megachurch or social social organizations that have the resources to meet these needs. That is not what a new planting is best at supplying. Build right. Build well. Seek out those who are eager and normal. How to schedule your time. The way you use your time will make or break your church planting. On the surface, it's a dream to have total control of your time. However, if you don't create a schedule that's productive and manageable, you'll become the victim of anxiety, worry, and a feeling of powerlessness. Control your morning schedule. Make sure your high-value and difficult activities get done before noon. What do I mean? Prayer, Bible study, exercise, inspirational reading. That's got to get in there early. Can't wait till the afternoon because you'll probably never get around to it. I want to recommend practicing the daily, the 20-mile march, the 20-mile march. Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, recounts the following story as he describes the concept of the 
quote-unquote, 20-mile march. In October 1911, two teams of adventurers made their final preparations in their quest to be the first people in modern history to reach the South Pole. For one team, it would be a race to victory and a safe return home. For the second team, it'd be a devastating defeat, reaching the pole only to find the wind-whipped flags of their rivals planted 34 days earlier, followed by a race for their lives, a race that they lost in the end, as the advancing winter swallowed them up. All five members of the second pole team perished, staggering from exhaustion, suffering the dead black pain of frostbite, and then freezing to death as some wrote their final journal entries and notes to loved ones back home. What was the difference? The winning team leader made progress consistently, day after day, an average of a little over 15 miles per day, while the second team leader was inconsistent in his progress. His progress depended too heavily on that day's weather. He often allowed his men to stay in their tents on days with extreme weather. The penalty for his inconsistency? He and all his team died. The lesson for the church planter is this. You must be steady and consistent doing those activities that will enable your church to grow. You and your team must walk with God, share your faith, encourage one another, study the Bible with the lost, and serve your neighbors day after day without ceasing. Here are some activities that will help you produce consistent results in your small church. First, get up at the same time, six days a week. Don't let your wide-open schedule tempt you to drift into a late-night Netflix-binging lifestyle. You need to be up early. It's good for your spirit and for your character. Read the Bible 20 20 to 30 minutes straight or five chapters a day. Read a good book 20 to 30 minutes. Pray 30 minutes minimum and pray with your wife three times a week. Exercise 30 to 45 minutes a day. Share your faith 60 minutes. If you don't have dedicated daily time for evangelism as a church planner, you need to ask yourself, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Personal finances, 15 to 30 minutes. You need to monitor your financial situation. Don't let out-of-control finances sink your dreams. Ministers are often dreamers and big-picture people who dread the focus on the details that stable personal finances demand. Force yourself to give it a little time every single day. Here's a daily example of a schedule. So you wake up early, 7 o'clock, you read the Bible, you get into some good books, 8 o'clock you pray, 8.30 you exercise, 9.30 you're setting up studies by phone, email, callbacks, 10 o'clock do a little bit of finances administration, 11 o'clock get out and share your faith. By noon you have a, a lunch appointment. Now I want you to imagine if you spent six months sticking to a form of the morning schedule I just described above. You'd feel a tremendous sense of confidence knowing You're the master of your schedule and what matters most in your life. You'll feel close to God. You'll have met open people personally. You'll enjoy peace of mind about your financial situation, and you'll feel good about your body, enjoying the stress-reducing benefits of exercise. Here's another tip. Complete your midweek lesson by Tuesday afternoon. Not only would I recommend getting your lesson prepared by Tuesday, but I'd also recommend working from a checklist to plan for your coming week. Don't allow drop balls to surprise you on Sunday. I'm speaking from experience here. You want to avoid surprising your members Sunday morning by asking them to say a prayer or do the welcome because you forgot to organize the program. Here's a checklist that I use to help me keep from forgetting recurring responsibilities. First, write thank you cards and birthday cards. 
to church members and those visiting our church. Call, text, or email those who are missing from Sunday. Check that events, articles, audio, and the outlines uploaded to the website. Update our attendance and membership on Excel spreadsheet. Create and distribute the Sunday theme, program, songs, improvements, and participant list. Complete the Wednesday program, the class, and the PowerPoint, and record ministry expenses. So I just have a a sheet that I pull out on Tuesdays, and I just knock those things out. I have to do it every single week because it keeps on, you know, everything happens repeatedly. It really helps me to stay on track. I'm a big picture person. And checklists really help me to get grounded again and stay focused so that I don't get embarrassed because I forget something. Then complete your Sunday lesson by Thursday night. Why waste your Saturday night panicked about the sermon you haven't written yet and that must be preached in less than 12 hours? Now, I I talked about this already. With those who are self-supporting, sometimes you just can't help it. Saturday night is your night. That's when you get it done. But if you're paid for by the church, if you're supported... You've got the time to do it earlier. I demand for myself that my lesson for Sunday is completed by Thursday night. This allows me two days to let the ideas percolate, think of illustrations, and reread and practice my delivery. I discuss this in detail elsewhere in the book, but Parkinson's Law states this, Work expands to fill the time available for its completion. Set aside three to five hours on Thursday to finish your lesson. Whatever you allot will miraculously be just enough time to complete your message. Force yourself to get the sermon done by Thursday, and magically, you'll get it done. You'll have greater peace of mind, more relaxed weekends, and better preaching. Use Saturday for evangelism only. Bible studies, evangelism, and double dates. Don't waste your Saturdays. Ministry is a people enterprise. Be available when people are available. Use Sunday afternoons for mission team meetings. I like to use Sundays after church for mission team meetings. That's when everyone's already there, and it's a good time to have a meal together and then give direction for the week. You can talk about who came to church, who you're staying the Bible with. It's a great, great chance after church to pull people together and just recount what happened that week. Servant Evangelism In his book, Conspiracy of Kindness, Steve Sogren recounts how he planted his church in Cincinnati, Ohio, using a method called Servant Evangelism. Servant evangelism makes evangelism easier for people to do consistently. Along with an invitation to church, you give away something small and inexpensive or perform some act of service. I wish I'd discovered this method of reaching out earlier in my Christian life. I know few Christians who find it easy to overcome our natural reluctance to share our faith. There are a few outliers, but most of us hesitate at best and panic at worst. Servant evangelism lowers the bar and reduces the fear of inviting someone to church. Since coming to Tucson, we've organized countless servant evangelism activities, and the most common comment from disciples after the event was, that was easy. I hope that the spiritual exercise of reaching out will encourage the team member to share throughout the week when he or she is alone. Here are some of the activities we've tried. First of all, giving away free EGs. That's a slushy drink that's popular in Tucson. This works like a charm in August. As students come back to the campus at the University of Arizona and the temperatures are above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Giving away free packs of gum. My favorite is Wrigley gum, specifically Juicy Fruit. Give away free protein bars. Those coming out of the local gym appreciate a post-workout shot of protein. Give away free water. We'll go to Costco or Walmart and buy... $200 worth of 
bottled water and before a college football or basketball game offer, entering spectators free water and an invitation to a great church. Because of security restrictions, unopened bottled water is often the only thing spectators can bring into sporting events. We've done free car washes. We give away free hot cocoa during the winter. There are many other ways to serve and share at the same time, and these are just a few of those that we've tried. When doing servant evangelism, I recommend stating a variation of, I'd like to offer you free blank and an invitation to a great church. If you ask someone, if you ask someone to, if they'd like something free, they'll often reflexively say no. If they ask, why are you doing this? Or what's the catch? Simply respond as Sogren recommends. We're trying to show God's love in a practical way. We found that two hours is more than enough time to have great sharing. 15 minutes to gather, 30 to 60 minutes of active servant evangelism, and then 15 minutes of sharing good news and debriefing is all it really takes. Whenever we have a sharing event like this, we'll usually get about 20% of our members participating on any given day. Relationships within the supporting church. I wouldn't recommend planting a church without a supporting or sending church. You'll need guidance and discipling, relationships and money. Your relationship with a parent church needs to be healthy. Think about this in human terms. If you're trying to start a family, but your relationship with your parents is dysfunctional, your odds of creating a dysfunctional family climb. In the same way, you don't want to have bad attitudes, resentment, or any bad blood between you and your family of churches, especially your sending church and its leadership. Instead, you'll need to maintain a humble and encouraging relationship with other churches. I'd recommend trying to get together with the leadership of your sending church, either monthly or quarterly. They can offer you guidance, discipling, and input that can help your church flourish. Aside from the value of maintaining good relationships, you're going to need a steady stream of money from your parent church. It takes more money than you think. It takes more time than you think to become financially independent as a congregation. Foster that relationship by being kind, friendly, respectful, and sharing positive news with your sending church. Like any good parent, your success is their success. And they'll love to continue to help you as you continue to grow and share what God is doing. Planting a church within a church. Sometimes you don't need to go to a geographic location to build a new church or ministry. An untapped mission field might be an outreach to a different demographic profile within your current church situation. You can define it by primary spoken language, ethnicity, race, or nationality. Pam and I received a call in 1993 to move to Tokyo, Japan to help that church that was led by Frank and Eric and Kim. They'd moved there in the late 80s with a young mission team and had built a growing church of nearly 200 members on one of the most historically difficult mission teams of the world. One writer described it as the quote-unquote Mount Everest of mission fields. I was surprised and thrilled because many of my friends from my campus ministry at UC Berkeley had gone to Asia to help start churches. I'm white and got passed over time after time, even as my Asian friends were invited to the mission field. We accepted the opportunity and flew out of San Francisco on May 15, 1993. We landed in Tokyo and enrolled in language school and were asked to lead the campus ministry. Japanese has been rightly called the devil's language because of its difficulty. My pride was humbled as I struggled to learn the language and lead the students in the Japanese college ministry. Luckily, I had a Japanese assistant who translated for me. We were also put in charge of a tiny group called the International Ministry. This was composed of anyone who was not Japanese. We had Americans, Chinese, Koreans, 
and others from around the world. This ministry grew quickly and eventually we spun off a Korean and Chinese ministry from the main group. In time, it reached about 200 members in the larger church of around 1,000 members. The stress and pressure of living in a foreign country had the effect of opening people up to new relationships with God and with people. Look around your current situation. You might be sitting on a spiritual gold mine of open people. Who can you reach right now who are not being deeply affected by the gospel? God may be calling you to an untapped growth center. Thanks for listening today. I'd like to ask your help through one of the following. First, hit the subscribe button. And then read and review one of my books, How to Plant and Grow a Church, or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, to live a no-regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day, and make this life count.